All right, man. Welcome to the Crow. Int- uh, sorry, man. I've had the flu. Welcome to uh, episode 84 of Crow Triple Seven Radio. Um, we're going to be covering Cecil Rhodes and the Rand Corporation, foundation, foundational bricks in the illusory wall here. Um, I apologize to everyone for having the episode out late, but I was about dead for two days. Also, uh, Ty Gorton, I'm so sorry for missing the live stream. I couldn't get up. Um, Jeff Rents, you had a spot for me on your show. I have contacted you. I'm so sorry that I couldn't make it. Uh, I'm happy to reschedule and hope we will. And lastly, Greg Carlwood at THC. Again, man, I am so sorry I could not get up. I was half dead. Um, I'm hoping we can reschedule. Anyhow, quite a bit to cover here. Um, as many have noticed, the YouTube channel is back up. If I had to guess at what has caused this, um, we had depleted every angle we could trying to reinstate it, and it looked like it was truly deleted for good. And then, lo and behold, I got a copyright strike while I was sick um, saying that a Higher Side Chats show that I'd been on a long time ago had music that was copywritten by, I believe it was Believe Entertainment again. Not sure about that. I'd have to double check. But that I got no strike. And I'm sitting here thinking, how can I get a strike when I have no channel? Go and lo and behold, my channel is up or a version of my channel. I log in and I'm about 1,000 to 1,500 subs less because when they canceled me, they put up an unsubscribe button. So I'm assuming that was part of the courtesy YouTube did for me. But I couldn't do anything. All Everything was just zeroed out, like a new account with 78,000 subs, basically. Um, I logged in this morning, and everything was back, including my community guideline strikes. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to run content on YouTube freely. Um, there is no intention, and never has been any intention, for this podcast to participate in hate speech or to harm anyone. And that is a fact. And I will challenge anyone who says differently. My guess is the community stood up against the ridiculous hate speech violation. And so many people contacted that the channel was reinstated. That's the only guess I can make. Having said that, I will not abridge my speech. I will not change a content, a syllable, a damn thing about what I'm posting. I have a natural born right for free speech. I have stated outright that there is never an intention to harm anyone and that I do not harm living things. So bullying and hate speech cannot be going on because that is the way I live my life. Anyhow, this is quite an episode. We cover some things many people won't be aware of. By the time we get to the second hour, we really start to peel back the veil a little bit about the first computers and things like that that have built the modern day illusion. Anyhow, man... Thank you all for all of you who stood up, and I apologize to those three shows that I missed, and I am more than happy to reschedule at your behest at any time. Anyhow, here we go, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 84. I have Jason Lingren with me, and we are going to delve in once again to the kind of controllers of our existence uh, another timeline we're going to cover the rand corporation and Rhodes. most people might recognize that name because of Rhodes scholarships there is a reason for that season anyhow uh welcome jason hello crew so man what do we got to cover here before we jump in i suppose we need to talk about uh i think it was yesterday got the notification back for my final push against YouTube to reinstate my channel, Crow 777, um, and they basically told me, tough luck, but there's more. In the rejection, where it basically said, you're not getting your channel back, they actually alluded to hate speech. So here comes Google sliding into the goose step using words like hate speech. Uh, most of the people listening here have listened to enough of our content to understand that that is so far from the truth. And I'll state for the record right now, uh, I harm no living thing, and I will never do things that are intended to hurt anybody anywhere. Um, the idea of hate speech is simply ridiculous, and it's being used, in my estimation, because you and I have challenged uh, the the mainstream news narrative. I mean, what do you think, Jason? Well, they didn't allude to anything. You shared the email from the company with me. They blatantly said that this is hate speech, and I would like to know how exactly they're arriving at that conclusion, because those that's some serious language. Yeah, exactly. That is some serious language. Um, you know, I did a tweet yesterday uh, that announced that this all happened, and I said in that tweet that Google 
has become the MCP from Tron. Um, people should go back and look at the ideas that are in the original Tron movie. That's what we see coming to bear here. Um, and in that construct, you know, you and I are users, but look even how the users are treated in that construct, what the MCP, the kind of overwhelming force the MCP can bring to bear. What else do we have to cover, Jason? Anything? Should I cover the, the places I'm going to be or anything like that? Yeah, let's talk about the shows you just did and, and some of the really cool stuff you've got coming up right in the next couple of days. All right, man. So I had to take a minute to think about it. I've talked to so many people. Um, we just did a show with Max Egan, which will come out next Friday, today being Wednesday uh, the 29th. So next Friday, this Friday, uh, that will come out. I did Iron Realm Media. What was the other one, Jason? Oh, uh, Truth Frequency Radio, TFR. I actually have a 15-minute recurring spot every Sunday night on Billy Ray Valentine's show. Uh, when I put a call out to go places, he was one of the first that stood up. So I've got a recurring spot there. That pretty much sums it up. I've been to some other places. Oh, I went on uh, – what's the, the lady's name, the Flat Earth Lady? Yeah, whatever. Uh, they were doing 200th episode, and I appeared in the last— Oh, Patricia Steer. That's right. Yeah, Patricia Steer, and I appeared in the last 10 minutes of that. Um, at this point, I'm going for every platform I can get out to to speak with people. The divisiveness that has gone on between kind of groups online, it just has to be set aside, man. People think it's flat. They don't. They think there's aliens. They don't. They're Muslim. They're Christian. All these things need to be set aside. People need to recognize the value of their fellow human beings and come together to stand up against the bigger things here, one of those bigger things being the suppression of free speech, free thought, free expression online. These are critical things, man. A culture without these things is little more than herd animals. Anyhow, anything else before we jump in, Jason? Yeah, well, you're going to be on Jeff Rents. And oh, yeah. we also got in contact with Jim Fetzer, and you're going to be doing something with him as soon as you, know, you guys can nail down a time. So two right. really big names right there. That's awesome. Right. So you lined up both of those, actually, Jason. Thank you for that. You know more people than I do. I just kind of sit in my own cocoon most of my life, um, keeping to myself for the most part. Um, but Rents, Jeff Rents is tonight, uh, Wednesday the 29th at 10 p.m. I'm not sure if that's live, but I think most of the shows that I do that are late at night are. But nonetheless, people will be able to find that. We're waiting to hear back to set the time for Jim Fetzer. And again, thank you for hooking those two up, Jason. Those are big names. Uh, when I go on these shows, I may start to mention why aren't the big radio networks like Ground Zero or whatever, Jerry B. Wells, whatever his name is, or Coast to Coast, why aren't these people covering free speech? Um, and flat out throw it out there, man. I'm Crow. I'm here. Have me on. I'll talk about it all day long. Anyhow, did we cover everything? Well, yeah, let's let's throw this out there. If anybody's got any contacts at Coast to Coast AM, whether it's it's during the weekday program with George Norrie or whomever is on the weekend at night, that would be awesome to get Crow on. Uh, John B. Wells' Caravan to Midnight, he's a really big name, and I, I generally like what he does. And also the uh, Dark Matter Network that Art Bell was doing when he did his little comeback before he retired again. That That's also a big platform that would be great to have Crow on. So let's throw that uh, out there. If anyone has any contacts, get in touch with uh, Crow or myself so that we can try and get him out there. Uh, the other thing is let's do a nice big shout-out to Secure Team for doing the video about your channel getting pulled and discussing all that. And they have an over a million person subscriberships, so getting some really big hits there. My, my own channel has gotten a really big push from them. Thank you. And uh, I'm starting to see other channels discuss this, so I think it just took a little over a week for the word to get out there, uh, because even when I spoke to Max Egan, he had no idea, and he seemed a little upset about it, too, and that's why he's like, all right, let's do this. Let's let's get the word out there. So people are getting on, on board to help out. Right, and slowly the search returns are coming back. It looks to me like AI is controlling the search returns. Some people in the world still get over a couple hundred thousand returns on Crow Travel 7. Right after I got terminated on YouTube, I had a page and a half. It was down to nothing. I'm now up to roughly 60,000 returns, which is a pittance compared to what it was. But again, uh, absolutely thank you to Secure Team 10. And again, to be very clear, um, I'm done splitting hairs about belief systems within the communities that are on online. Um, this is not the time or place for it. People can say or believe whatever they want. What Jason and I are about is lighting a light, putting down what we can put down, and if people find value in it, following it. With that in mind, 
being able to speak in front of any community that we can get to matters to us now, particularly in the face of what's going online with the digital darkness creeping in through the aegises of places like Google. Anyhow, pretty sure we got it all, Jason. Yeah, I think we're good to go there. All right. Well, let's jump into this thing and we'll preface, you know, maybe you want to preface. I think a lot of people maybe are not familiar with the Rand Corporation or Rhodes. Um, what we're looking at um, are people who came to matter one hell of a lot in the larger scheme of world events. And um, we're going to draw from the publicly accessible records. Again, history is a lie agreed upon, but this is the basis for the conversation. You will see things as we go through this, like these people that end up taking over nearly everything. We're sickly little kids and all this other what I consider to be nonsense, this backstory that's inserted into places like Wikipedia. Anyhow, Jason, what would you preface this conversation just to clue people into where we're about to go. Well, I'd say this is a twofold topic, but they have direct connections to, uh, with each other. And both of them would be that they desire a, a world governing body behind the scenes with the power elite. So the first one's going to be Cecil Rhodes and his lovely scholarship program that has yielded very stunning results. And of course, the RAND Corporation, which stands for Research and Development. Now, these two organizations contribute massively to the control structure that has been tightening its noose around our necks for at least the last 100-plus years. So the first thing we'll, we'll do is let's discuss the awesome, wonderful humanitarian that Cecil Rhodes was in, during his life and this massive legacy he left behind that very few seem to ever really take a, a really hard look at. Right. And, and, you know, before we get into this, Jason, I think that Cecil Rhodes um, and the Rhodes Scholarship is named after this man, which you'll get into. Um, these are one of the people that did massive damage to the black populations in Africa. Um, I don't know how far we're going to get into it, but the whole idea of the white enclaves in South Africa and apartheid, there's almost no separating the name Cecil Rhodes from any of that, is there? No, no, not at all. He is he is what you would call an elitist through and through. Yeah. And, you know, I make no apology. There is no honor in any of this when you go in and you treat peoples in this manner, in my view, um, which is a big part of why we're covering this. It's not just all us European people or people in the West uh, that have felt the effects of this. The people in Africa had a bomb dropped on him when this man set foot on the continent. Anyhow, over to you, Jason. All right, so Cecil Rhodes. He was born in 1853 in Bishop's Stortford, Hertfordshire, England. He was the fifth son of the Reverend Francis William Rhodes and his wife, Louisa Peacock Rhodes. His father was a Church of England clergyman. He attended the Bishop's Stortford Grammar School from the age of nine, but as a sickly and asthmatic child, he was taken out of grammar school in 1869, and it seems he was homeschooled by his father. His health was considered quite poor, and there was a great fear that he was suffering from tuberculosis, a disease of which several of the family members actually showed symptoms of. So his father decided to send him far from England with the notion that the effects of a sea voyage and a hopefully better climate may help his condition. So Herbert, an older brother of Cecil's, was a cotton farmer in Natal, South Africa, and this is where Cecil was sent to live. The voyage to the city of Durban took him 70 days, and on September 1st, 1870, he first set foot on the African continent. And, oh boy, did he change things from there. So here we have, man, one of the masters of the universe, and when does he put his foot down on the African continent? Of course, in the great month of September, where we all take the fall. Um, and this man is going to facilitate one hell of a fall for a lot of people as we get into the story. But I'll harp on it again. Um, you know, we constantly see these type of master of the universe personages that end up having such a bearing on the history of this world. Uh, and they're almost always described as sickly in this. And they had to go to Africa because they were that. Um, it just doesn't, none of it sits right with me uh, because these people, most of them, live to ripe old ages. Um, but uh, they end up affecting so much. So it doesn't sound, the lifetimes that are described do not sound like they're coming from sickly people. And as we get into this, I think you'll find um, that most of the descriptions of what this man does are, you know, superhuman, some of the things that he brings to bear. Well, he's one that definitely did not live to a ripe old age, uh, slightly right. older than me and definitely less than you. But the damage he did during that lifespan, whew. So Cecil had a brief stay with the Surveyor General of Natal, Dr. P.C. Sutherland, in P. 
Peter Maritzburg, and it was there that Rhodes took an interest in agriculture. He then joined his brother Herbert on his cotton farm in the Umkomazi Valley in Natal. The land was actually unsuitable for cotton, which is what they were trying to grow, and the farming attempts ended in failure. In October 1871, the now 18-year-old Cecil Rhodes and his brother Herbert left the colony for the diamond fields of Kimberley. Financed by N.M. Rothschild and Sons, Rhodes succeeded over the next 17 years in buying up all of the smaller diamond mining operations in the Kimberley area, and this is how that whole monopoly began. So here we have it, man. You're reading a history of a person is just like it's some sickly kid that came from nowhere and makes it big. And I'm calling Poppycock. I'm calling Balderdash. Here we have the Rothschild family bankrolling this family uh, to go out and buy up all the diamonds. Um, I don't know how much we're going to get into diamonds here, Jason, but just so everyone's clearly aware, diamonds have been held as a monopoly nearly from this point forward. Diamonds are nearly valueless. All the value of diamonds is artificially held. There are so many diamonds in this world that if the market was allowed to be unmanipulated, you'd be paying a penny a diamond. Um, you know, of course, diamonds have fantastic applications in the industrial sector for their hardness and other things. But in terms of every person wearing a diamond on their finger when they get married, think about what we're talking about here. Uh, these are coming from a controlled source where it's been monopolized and the artificial nature of the value of a diamond has been upheld from this time forward. And I don't think we really have to mention the idea of blood diamonds uh, where black communities were so horribly treated uh, to mine these diamonds. Back to you, Jason. Right. Now, more social engineering took place where they convinced people that you had to have a diamond engagement ring to initiate the uh, the, the whole marriage situation, and because that, that, that didn't really exist before then. Di right. Diamonds are what's considered a semi-precious stone, meaning that they're Scarcity is not on the level of, say, another kind of gem like like a, a ruby or something like that. Diamonds are quite common in comparison. However, it's in limited regions, which is what they, they managed to do here when he gets the De Beers company founded and all that. So, yeah, massive social engineering is what we see here. And they basically just convince the public that you have to have this thing and there's a massive price tag attached to it. Right. And so this goes to show uh, when Ro when Rothschild steps in, there's a reason for that season. So here this guy goes and buys up all the diamond mines. And as Jason stated, it has affected nearly everyone listening to this show. When you get married, you will get a diamond to put on your finger. This is social engineering. This is artificial monopoly construct around diamonds, a thing that is basically carbon. Um Anyhow, well, I guess we should add there's more to it than this. And, you know, we're not going to do an episode on diamonds here. But, you know, there are places like Antwerp and other places which become the main cutters and polishers of diamonds. And within that whole scope of things, it is almost all Jewish owned. Um, it's a complete construct, lock, stock and barrel, to say the least. Yeah, it absolutely is. In 1873, Cecil Rhodes returned to Britain to study at Oxford. While attending Oriel College, Rhodes became a Freemason in the Apollo University Lodge. Although at first he didn't seem to approve the organization, he continued to be a Freemason until his death in 1902. The shortcomings of the Freemasons, in his opinion, later caused him to envisage his own secret societies with the goal of bringing the entire world under British rule. According to the author Carol Quigley, he set up the Roundtable Movement to this end. We've referenced the Roundtable movement in other episodes, and they had to do with the fringes of Tavistock, some of the authors and other people who can be associated. And, of course, the Roundtable movement is constantly associated with overarching groups like the Club of Rome or the CFR, these other things. I don't remember exactly which, but, you know, there's a couple things to note here. He, he's a Freemason in basically the Sun University Lodge. That's what's being said here, the Apollo University Lodge. And then they make this offhand comment that he didn't really dig him and they thought there was an issue with him and Freemasonry wasn't so great, but he stays there till the end of his life. So do these two things jive? And again, 
When does he die? Let me count the ways. He dies in 1902. For me, uh, that's an open door to question whether or not this man died at all. Um, it's a problematic thing to ask because it will always be difficult to prove the idea that these people are living longer than us and that when these famous personages die, something else altogether is going on. Maybe there will come a point when we can be to demonstrate it. But here we have it, man. 1873. He's into the Apollo or Sun University Lodge. The complaint is made that the Masons aren't that great, but then he remains a member for his whole life until he dies in a year where we should count the ways. Um, did I let anything drop there, Jason? Nope. My, my thing on that was he may not have liked the structure of the Freemasons, but no matter what, he did become one. So he had the benefits of that structure to assist him in, in whatever diabolical affairs he was involved with. Right. I think what you're actually looking at in Rhodes is a person who is highborn, very highborn, the bloodline or whatever it is, for people like Rothschilds to get involved and basically fund him and allow him to become a king in certain parts of the world uh, demonstrates this. So whether or not he's thrilled with what he finds at a Freemasonic Lodge, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's a blueprint for him. And when you see things like the round table brought together, you're just looking at an, it's almost like stepping into a Masonic Lodge and saying, you know what, we're going to put a managerial college above you or something like that. And the people that get into that group are going to be way more vetted they got to have the right blood type. They got to have the right bloodline. They got to have the right family name, this kind of idea. And you can see that it's true when the idea of the round table is to bring the entire world under British rule. And I assume you're going to address the Enlightenment idea as we get in. Right. Now, Rhodes only stayed at Oxford for one term after when she returned to South Africa. His monopoly of the world's diamond supply was sealed in 1890 through a strategic partnership with the London-based Diamond Syndicate. There seems to have been an agreement made to control the world's diamond supply to maintain gouging-level high prices. You know, having a monopoly on a particular resource grants you certain liberties, I would say. Yeah. Rhodes supervised the working of his brother's claim and speculated on his behalf. Among his associates in the early days were John X. Merriman and Charles Rudd, who later became his partner in the De Beers Mining Company and the Niger Oil Company. During the 1880s, Cape Vineyards had been devastated by a phylloxera epidemic. The diseased vineyards were dug up and replanted, and farmers were looking for alternatives to wine. In 1892, Rhodes financed the Pioneer Fruit Growing Company at Newit Gedacht, a venue created by Harry Pickstone, an Englishman who had experience with fruit, uh, fruit growing in the state of California. The shipping magnate Percy Molteno had just undertaken his first successful refrigerated export to Europe, and in 1896, after consulting with Molteno, Rhodes began to pay more attention to export fruit farming and bought farms in Groot Drakenstein, Wellington, and Stellenbosch. A year later, he bought Rhone in Boschendal and commissioned Sir Herbert Baker to build him a cottage there. So a lot of these names, even if you're not familiar with them, they were all big, big players in the corporate world at that time, and he was having fruit cups with all of them. Right. And you're you're seeing the big names here, the De Beers Mining Company. So there's your monopoly on diamonds and the artificial elevation of the value of diamonds, which truly aren't worth much of anything. If you look at the glut of diamonds that are available in the world, unfortunately, they're all just controlled by the same place or the same syndicate. Also, you're going to see Niger oil dropped in here. So it's not enough. The guy's into diamonds. Now he's getting into oil. Um, there was a failed run at vineyards here, but what's he doing now? He's getting in on the food movement. And here we see the first refrigeration uh, ships and other things moving fruit. So basically, he's in right now at this point in the timeline, he's into diamonds, artificially maintained. He's into oil, which is going to come to bear in all our lives later on. And uh, he's big into the fruit thing here. And it is all being produced on the back of basically slave labor of the regional peoples that lived there. Right. Now, in 1880, Rhodes begins entering into a public political life, which he would maintain for quite a few years. First, he became a member of the Cape Parliament. In 1890, he became Prime Minister of the Cape Parliament. Being the awesome guy he was, he introduced something called the Glen Gray Act to push black people from their lands and make way for industrial development. Rhodes' view was that black people needed to be driven off their land to, quote, stimulate them to labor 
and to change the habits. It must be brought home to them, Rhodes said, that in future, nine-tenths of them will have to spend their lives in manual labor, and the sooner that is brought home to them, the better. Rhodes was eventually forced to step down as prime minister due to his having disagreements with a neighboring province that led to what was called the Jameson Raid, which led to more bloodshed in the area and, and in wars, I believe, as well, on top of all the other things he did. So let's cut to the chase here, Jason. Rhodes is a guy who's actually on the record as having stated that black people are subhuman, um, not on the same level. Um, You can already see these ideas coming to fruition when the white guys from Europe set up the Cape Parliament. Um, There are endless tribes and ancient ways all over the continent of Africa that are going to come under the sway of these now European interests. And by the time he puts the Glenn Gray Act in, um, it's basically doing the same thing that they're still doing today with things like the World Wildlife Fund. Um, With the World Wildlife Fund, they're acting like the main push is to save all these animals, but what it is actually doing is removing all rights and freedom of movement and this type of thing from the black aboriginal people who have lived there since forever, probably. So we're looking at a man who is coming in and treating peoples of an area in the way that we've seen the Europeans do it all along. And I would point out that this doesn't just stop with uh, ethnic peoples. This will creep into the lives of every person who is not of the right stature in, uh, in, in culture. And for those of you who don't know, Africa is incredibly rich in all sorts of different kinds of resources, and a lot of it is actually untapped. And it's quite obvious that by the 1800s, the uh, white aristocracy had figured that out and were doing all these lovely things to exploit it and make sure that the, the indigenous peoples pretty much didn't get anything. Well, what's funny is, you know, we go through this whole apartheid thing, and for a while there in the 80s and 90s, you know, bands wouldn't go play in South Africa, or they would, and it would be a big problem, but it's all nonsense. You see, now that it's open to the world at some point for everyone to look at and recognize that not only is this wrong, it's akin to slavery – Um, It's the subjugation of peoples because of their skin color. But you see, nothing's changed. Um, While they give the illusion that apartheid is over and, you know, there's not all this white bearing on South Africa that there once was, it's not true. It's just taken different forms like the World Wildlife Fund and all these other things that we covered in the Tavistock Institute episodes. Um, The very same things, uh, maybe not so overtly, are going on now that ever went on. Yeah. So Rhodes had a very interesting elitist view on things. He wanted to expand the British Empire because he believed that the Anglo-Saxon race was destined to greatness. In his last will and testament, which was the seventh of them, by the way, Rhodes said of the British, I contend that we are the first race in the world, and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. I contend that every acre added to our territory means the birth of more of the English race who otherwise would not be brought into existence. Rhodes wanted to make the British Empire a superpower in which all of the British-dominated countries in the empire, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Cape Colony, would be represented in the British Parliament. Rhodes included American students as eligible for the Rhodes Scholarships as well, by the way. He said that he wanted to breed an American elite of philosopher kings who would have the United States rejoin the British Empire. Rhodes also respected and admired the Germans and their Kaiser, so he allowed German students to also be included in the Rhodes Scholarships. Rhodes believed that eventually the United Kingdom, including Ireland, the United States, and Germany together would dominate the world and ensure perpetual peace. Now, I'm not entirely sure he was incorrect, considering who it is that is pulling the strings behind the scenes in today's world. Yeah, so they they described this as if it was some pie-in-the-sky dream of this dude Rhodes, but the the truth of it is is that these things really happened. Um, You know, Britain has huge sway to this day. Um, But what's really kind of astonishing about this is when he's talking about his race is better than everyone else's, uh, handing out Rhodes scholarships where he will, one of those places being Germany, when really the undertone of what's being said here is fascist, um, where there is a race of people that's better than everyone else. That is the undertone here. And the problem with it is, is when you read these old historical accounts, it's almost like, well, this is the dream of this guy that never happened. 
Well, it did happen. And actually, some of the places mentioned here were left out. What about India as part of the empire? Uh, possibly the cradle of civilization. You could make the argument when you've got Africa and India, you're almost certainly owning the cradle of civilization wherever it might have been. But nonetheless, there is no getting away from the fascist undertones of what's being said. And the sad part is, is this was not a pie in the sky. These things came to bear and they still have a bearing on us to this day. Now, at this point, I think it's pretty obvious that we've painted a picture that this guy had stupid amounts of money and resources at his command. And when he sets up these road scholarships that I'm about to explain, he obviously had a very specific intention of how this money should be divvied out and to whom. Because he was right. trying to steer the future with his, his legacy, with all this vast wealth that he had accumulated with these different companies. So bear that in mind as I start reading through this. This guy had the kind of money today that I would compare to Bill Gates or like any of the other public elitist types. Uh, he, he had... I wouldn't say unlimited resources, but enough resources to push the entire world in the direction that he wanted to go. Now, while he was very blatantly nationalistic, the things he helped set in place are no longer really about countries or races per se. I would say it's more about the mentality of the elitist, and, and those people are predominantly white, Anglo-Saxon. They are, uh, you know, the Rothschilds are actually originally hailed from Germany and all that, so maybe that's why he was totally cool with Germans and all that. But like, just keep all that in mind. It's not really about country as much. When when they call it a new world order, they literally mean they want to dominate the entire world under their rule. Well, what's also interesting about this is you're pointing out the massive amount of wealth Cecil Rhodes has. Let's not forget who funded him first, Rothschild. So um, you understand who's the king above Cecil Rhodes, clearly the Rothschild family. So if Cecil Rhodes has this kind of money, um, then what do the Rothschilds have? Uh, more money that could ever be spent in a million lifetimes, probably. But as we get into the Rhodes scholarships here, you know, in the last bullet point you covered, they're talking about, you know, king philosophers in America and all this. The, the scholarship is going to be a big part of what scholarship is about, is identifying the people that they want to harvest for their cause. Right. And and the thing that can be said is that the Rothschilds got control of the, uh, the, the banking and, and the financial systems. And then by having that as their main chess piece, they can push that in any direction with other corporations. So the opportunity in South Africa was just uh, one piece of that. So they, they grabbed onto that and then transformed that into something to generate even more vast amounts of wealth. So then this is how they did it. If you look at the history of the Rothschilds, and maybe we should do an episode just trying to dissect them as much as we can, this is what they do it, it, everywhere. I mean, you see ties with that with uh, J.P. Morgan in, in America and eventually with, with the Federal Reserve. And, you know, they bankrolled Woodrow Wilson to get him to do it. Like all these things, it always comes back to these people, these banking clans. So that's what it is. Right. And well, the other thing I would point out here, Jason, is as we go through this acceptable timeline and, you know, I just call nonsense. You know, we're being asked to accept that this was just some fifth kid of some preacher somewhere um, that ended up being here. I'm calling poppycock. I'm saying that this is all planned from the get-go. I'm saying that these are family names that are driving it. And I'm further saying that the Rothschilds don't step in and make a king out of someone in the way Cecil Rhodes is made king um, unless there's a relationship to the overall effort um, of this kind of new world ordery idea um, that we're alluding to here. I just, I don't see any other way around it. I, I don't accept these stories of, you know, poor kid with asthma made good. It's very suspicious, although there's no uh, mainstream evidence to suggest that he was anything but. There had to have been some sort of ties. I mean, the only other thing I can see it being is that they saw an opportunity and jumped on it. I mean, because they needed somebody there to uh, to take care of business for them. That's a possibility, I assume, but... With these people, there's always like a bloodline tie. That's what we always end up finding out. Right. Well, if that was the case, I would suggest that Rhodes would have just been a manager being bossed around by the Bankster families, and that's kind of not what we see. Um, he's even setting up these scholarships, which are going to give him a fertile plane to go and seek the best and the brightest. And you're going to even use examples of all the Rhodes scholars that have been plucked. So go ahead. So the official line on the Rhodes Scholarship... In Cecil Rhodes' last will and testament, he provided for the establishment of the Rhodes Scholarship, the world's first international study program. 
The scholarship enabled students from territories under British rule or formerly under British rule and from Germany to study at Rhodes' alma mater, the University of Oxford. Rhodes' aims were to promote leadership marked by public spirit and good character and to render war impossible by promoting friendship between the great powers. Now, what I just read you is, if you look it up, that's what officially it's stated that the intention is. So let me take a second to tie the idea of the Rhodes Scholarship and the wholesale control of universities all over the world uh, by these bankster families uh, to the idea of digital darkness. And what Jason and I have been covering recently, basically what you're seeing is an artificial system being brought to bear, built on science, built by science, um, that in my view seeks to replace the natural system. In other words, we could say that somehow this world got here and this natural system that appears to be perfect from our point of view, uh, however it got here, these guys want to replace it with their system, making them the gods, making them literally the masters of the universe. What I see when I hear Jason outlining these scholarships and knowing what the universities have become is the idea that they want to find the best most brilliant and brightest among us, to bring them into the fold, to have them go at the sciences, to have them play the roles of the in the public eye that Jason will outline later, um, to further this idea of this new artificial system that's coming to bear. Everything I've just said is outside the timelines you're going to read. It's outside almost everything. But when you start to run all the research together, you begin to see the common thread that science is the foundation for everything that's coming to bear now. It's artificial. It's erroneous in many cases, and we can demonstrate it. And it is the main tools of these new would-be masters of the universe who seek to own it all, man. So there's that, Jason. Well, what I'm seeing here is they, they set up this organization – Obviously, the most brilliant people in the world aren't only just going to be born to these small amounts of families that are, are you know, behind the controlling mechanisms. So they want to pluck from society all over people that they can use and twist to their designs. Perfect example, one of the best examples, is former President Bill Clinton. Right. I mean, just look at the amount of crap that guy got away with. Obviously, he was brought under their wing. He fully embraced whatever it is they offered him and rode it all the way to the White House, completely did a whole bunch of terrible crap, could get away with anything you want. He's obviously a sexual deviant of some sort and never gets in trouble for it. And to this day, people still idolize this man like he is the bee's knees. And I'll give it to him this. This guy is the rock star of political candidates. I mean, he's just got charisma oozing from every orifice and he can schmooze when he's in the right position on stage, the entire audience. He's, he's got that. He's like, like Elvis in his prime. I definitely respect the guy's capability to do that, but man, he is just one piece of work. Well, look at, look at the outcome of all those things that happened in the Clinton Clinton years when for two years solid, all we heard in the news was Bill Clinton had sex in the Oval Office. Um, this is also contributing to the lowering of the human mind. You see, because this man is still a hero. He is still the rock star as he ever was. But look at the things that we've all decided to accept are okay with him. Um, you know, the whole idea of the semen stained dress, um, these seed, you know, these just kind of low minded things that are drug out into the public for two years, having sex with cigars, having oral sex in the Oval Office, all these things where if they happened or they didn't, the public forum is no place for them. And that's not why they're there in the first place. They're there to supposedly govern. And so what you find is that when people choose sides and people are backing this kind of behavior, you're seeing the lowering of human minds. You see, because in an actually factually based world, when you have a hero, that hero has done something to deserve the, the admiration that he's getting. He's done some great deed. Well, that ain't Bill Clinton. I'm sorry. This is the cult of personality, and this is the social engineering that goes with it to slowly erode the higher-mindedness of a people by beginning to accept these very seedy, low-minded things that get drug into the media for two years. Um, but that's, that's my point of view on all that. I remember thinking even back in the 90s when they're making a big deal about this, who gives a crap who he had sex with? I mean, do you ever look at his wife? It's not, it's not relevant. You know, it's like, of course he has sex with women. Who doesn't? I mean, that 
it's normal stuff. It's like obviously there was a further agenda with all this, and he didn't actually get into any kind of trouble over it. He was totally fine. So obviously there was an agenda behind all this, and I picked up on it even then before I knew very much. It's the erosion of what makes people higher-minded. In the same way, you know, like if you went back to the 80s and cable had just come to bear, so there was going to be this new kind of mass media, and the big thing was, man, I can watch whatever I want whenever I want. And all of a sudden, there was nudity, like channels devoted to nudity or sex, but they were scrambled. That's the 80s. Now look where we are now. Any kid that's not being watched that gets in front of a computer can get the most audacious porn or anything else at their fingertips. This is the erosion of the higher-minded ideals of human beings, and Bill Clinton played into this. Um, And he's not the only one. It's been done endlessly. And sex is a good example because it plays on our senses. It plays on the weaknesses of human beings. But you see, a higher-minded society will resist these temptations and deal with the things that truly matter. In the case of a president, you should be governing, looking out for the people, not tied up for two years talking about some sexual endeavor you had in your office when you should have been doing these things. And then when you get all the people to choose sides where half of them hate the guy and the other half love the guy, you truly have lowered the minds of of a population. In my view, I think it's one of the key social engineering aspects uh, how sex has been brought to bear since roughly the end of the 70s. So there's that idea. Right. And they spent more time discussing his sexual exploits than any of the other things he may or may not have been doing, such as governing policies that might have been extremely important and had lasting effects all the way up to today. Right. Right. I mean, there's no getting away from it. These these were not the things that a president should have been in the news for. And that's why they did it. And it's the same nonsense they're doing now with Trump. You know, it's like it's just more distraction. Talk about his policies. Don't talk about, you know, who, who he did what with where. Uh, who cares? Th- these are human beings. I mean, even if they had the best of intentions, you know, not saying that they do. I'm not implying that at all. But even if somebody went there with the best of intentions, I'm sorry, people are people. People do things, uh, you know, and sex is one of the big parts of being human. And we just who freaking cares about that? Well, I I mean, you can make the same argument with going to the bathroom, Jason. All people have to do it, but it's not something that we're going to put on the evening news nonstop for two years. Although that's not even true. Um, All the potty humor that's come into primetime television has been creeping in. Um, These are just things to lower the mind. And in my view, these people are not voted into office. They're put there by the Electoral College. That's a backdoor to power. It's been proven time and time and again. Everyone was taught it in high school. These people are players put there to play the role they're doing. Trump is no different. It, you know, if you fall into the idea of Democrat and Republican, you've been deluded. Um, first of all, anyone who considers himself Democrat or Republican is so much more than any of those artificial ideas could possibly encompass. But they've been convinced that they're going to get jammed into that box. That's the first part of social engineering. The second part of social engineering in a big way in this country is that any of these guys are put there because of the will of the people. Not only do you not pick them when they start to become political, you do not seat them when they take the important positions in this country. That is done by another entity that you know nothing about. And it is demonstrable all day long simply by looking at the Electoral College, why it was put there, the state of Rhode Island that refused to participate, stating outright that it was a backdoor. We are looking at players on a stage that are just more of the masters of the universe and the kind of roads and corporation existence that we find ourselves in that so few of us have taken the time to look at. You know, these are this is all publicly available, but it's time. You know, it's time for people to look at how things got to be the way they are, because right as we speak, Google is ramping up to pick up the torch from people like Rhodes, from people who have been past presidents to engineer this country. Um, And they're going to implement freedom of speech decline. That's what they're doing. This is all a grand plan. And what's coming behind it, I call digital darkness. But that was a bit of a wander, Jason, but it is what it is. You know, something Jordan Maxwell always said that I I love, and that's, you might get to elect, but you don't get to select. And when it comes to the presidency, I'll add as as an addition to that, you don't even get to elect because obviously, as we've discussed so many times, it's the Electoral College that puts the presidency in, even though people get all wound up to think that they elect the president when you do not. 
Well, what's funny is if you asked any person who currently buys into the political ideas of left and right, red and blue, you know, all these things they've been asked to stuff their bodies into, which box do you fit into, you know, once they've done that, if you asked them, um, could Hillary and Trump be any further apart, they would say no, these are polar opposites, right? Well, there's a crap load of fantastic research that has been done that show that both these people come from the very same Scottish bloodline. So, I mean, come on, people. We grow up at some point and we face the realities at hand or we continue to decide we're red or blue. Well, I'm not red and I'm not blue and I'm not purple and I'm not green. I'm a living man and I will think what I want to think. I will not be stuffed into a box that predetermines the things that I'm, I, I am okay with. That's social engineering. That's what the whole basis of this country is being governed by and has been governed by for my lifetime anyhow. And that's the truth of things here. But anyhow, Jason. So I read to you the official statement if you looked up what the Rhodes Scholarship Program is all about. Now let's talk about the reality of the Rhodes Scholarship. In 1877, while still studying at Oxford, and it took Cecil Rhodes eight years because of having to run the aforementioned diamond mines, he wrote the first of seven wills, each of which became a separate and legally binding document. It called for the establishment of, quote, a secret society with but one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery of the United States and for making the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire. <laughs> Frank Adelaide, a founding member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the American Secretary to the Rhodes Trustees, wrote in his book, American Rhodes Scholarships, in his first will, Rhodes states his aim still more specifically. The extension of British rule throughout the world, the foundation of so great a power as to hereafter render wars impossible and promote the interests of humanity. When he died, his third will, drafted in 1888, called for the establishment of a trust run by his son-in-law, Lord Rosebury, a Rothschild agent, to administer his fortune. In his seventh and last will... Rhodes named Nathan Rothschild as administrator of his estate and established an educational grant known as the Rhodes Scholarships at Oxford University, which a lot of people say is controlled by the Fabian Society to one degree or another. The Rhodes Scholarships normally provided for a two-year program for young men, and all the way in 1977 finally included women, from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Germany. Rhodes Scholars may study any full-time postgraduate course offered by the university, whether a taught master's program, a research degree, or a second undergraduate degree of senior status. In the first instance, the scholarship is awarded for two years. However, it may also be held for one year or three years. Applications for a third year are considered during the course of the second year. University and college fees are paid by the Rhodes Trust. In addition, scholars receive a monthly maintenance stipend to cover accommodation and living expenses. Although all scholars become affiliated with a residential college while at Oxford, they also enjoy access to Rhodes House, an early 20th century mansion with numerous public rooms, gardens, a library, study areas, and other facilities. <laughs> my, my, my. Isn't that nice? So the roadhouse isn't the one Patrick Swayze went to, right? This is something different. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Hogwarts. But out of all that, I could dissect, Jason. I'm simply going to say this. It is very telling indeed that the Rhodes Scholarship is available only to people in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Germany. There it is, man. Um, our bloodline is better than your bloodline. That's flat out what's being stated here. And it's a little interesting, too, to consider that he sets it up in 1877. And 100 years to the year later, women are allowed to jump in. But there it is, man. These are the people uh, who lived the life of what the Nazis said in public and get away with it. They're doing it through through the money and all that, like as opposed to the Nazis trying to do it by beating you over the head with with uh, military force. They're doing it all with the higher society mindedness thing going on. So so they're getting away with it in that way, even though they're just blatantly doing the same kind of crap. They're just not doing it at at, at the barrel of a gun, you know. 
Well, they're saying that these special bloodlines and these correct family names, or maybe uh, to some degree, someone who's so brilliant they'll be elevated into the service of these places, are the people that matter. Um, th this is not a real scholarship. A real scholarship seeks to elevate anyone who is serious about education and doing well at it. That's what a real scholarship is. What this is, is just targeting. And not only targeting, it gives them a place to harvest the people that will come to play their game, as you are about to point out. Right, here we go. Some interesting examples of Infinite's Road Scholars, but by no means is this all of them. Rachel Maddow, MSNBC journalist. Chris Christofferson, rock star musician. <laughs> Bill Clinton, former U.S. president. Naomi Wolf, a very outspoken feminist. Bobby Jindal, former Louisiana Republican governor, the one right before the one that's seated right now, I might add. And Nick Kristoff, a New York Times colonist. I picked those in particular so that you can see how they're just sort of scattered out through all different organizations and weaving their web through everything. Well, it's pretty funny. Bobby Jindal must have British uh, citizenship or something, because I'm pretty sure that dude's Indian, right? He, he is Indian, yes. <laughs> so, so how does he qualify for America, Great Britain, you know, kind of Germany um, acceptance into the Rhodes Scholar idea? Um, actually, it's probably not that hard of a thing to figure out. Uh, since Britain owned India, Bobby Jindal is probably a, uh, a, British, a British civilian, I would imagine. Well, things did get expanded later on to allow other people's, you know, other races in. But it, while it was always just for whites at first, it, it definitely, after all the events of the 50s and 60s and all the racial stuff, they, it finally got opened up. But believe me, they fought tooth and nail to make sure that, to try and prevent that from happening, I should say. All right, Jason, I just did a quick look up of the recipients of the scholarship. There are so many of them, it would take us days to go through it. But I quickly noticed that Hubble of Hubble Space Telescope naming fame is in there, and it goes to show you what's going on here. In my view, there is no Hubble Space Telescope. In my view, nothing has ever left our atmosphere. If that's correct, then what you're looking at is the fraud that is the Hubble Space Telescope named after one of the recipients of the scholarship. These are the weavers of dreams. You know, that's part of the game that's that's been played here. And one thing that I noticed in your bullet points, Jason, is more than once it's been the idea that the British Empire can rule so that war is not even possible. There are so many people out there, myself among them, who have tried to demonstrate that the wars, the big wars on record, did not go down in the way you think they did. They were brought to you by the press and the media. And so does it play into this idea where wars wouldn't be possible? Are these the movers and shakers that put on the illusion that this conflict is happening or that conflict, um, these kinds of ideas? But anyhow, I'll kick it back over to you. I wanted to go through that list, but man, it's longer than both my legs put together. Oh, no, there have been thousands of Rhodes Scholars, and uh, it's a laundry list of people who did indeed go on to affect change, uh, societal change, in many different aspects. So, yeah, th th this, is a, this is a serious thing. But uh, to, to back up what you were saying about the, the bullet point, Cecil Rhodes apparently mentioned numerous times that, of course, war would be impossible if every single thing uh, was under British control, so... <laughs> Yeah, it, well, it goes to show you, uh, if we look back through the history of recent wars, um, like I did World War II, and when I did the work on it, I was wondering if I would even be able to speak freely about it, because what I found was that Pearl Harbor did not go down in the way you think it did. It's it's more media-driven nonsense uh, in the same way that the bomb drops at Hiroshima and Nagasaki are provable that nuclear weapons do not exist in the way they've been described. You and I demonstrated that in almost an unarguable way using common sense. Um, but when you begin to think about these things, I started digging back through archives and I got to the Battle of Midway, where we're being told that one of the big Hollywood producers that did Westerns, I think it was John Ford, I don't know if I've got John that Houston, right. I think. I forget which one, Ford or Houston, one of them, is supposedly in combat filming. Supposedly the camera gets hit with shrapnel and he gets wounded, but they leave it in. And I reviewed that very, very carefully. At no time in any of that midway footage are you looking at real combat. There are overlays of propaganda that are so kind of in-your-face ridiculous to the modern eye where a grandmotherly voice is saying things like, oh, save that poor lad, get him the medicine he deserves, and I'm not even kidding you. <laughs> um, 
and then bombs going off that are clearly just little like flash cans planted in the ground. Um, other things like anti-aircraft guns on the deck of a ship somewhere, supposedly shooting down planes you can't see. And then as the camera pans quickly across all the guys, they're all laughing as they're supposedly in the middle of combat. It's all a construct. And these are the newsreels that were brought to us uh, during the movies. Most people went to the movies and they would see these newsreels. No way to record it, no way to review it. You get one shot and they propagandize you. And that's what it was for. As a matter of fact, the review I did was from a place that said modern cinema that was used for propaganda within it the Battle of Midway within it, uh, Pearl Harbor as an example. So these ideas that he is talking about almost certainly echo out to what we're uncovering now about what the media has done and the true nature of human beings. Um, could it be that so few of us are willing to kill each other that they've been making up this crap mostly 80% of the time? Uh, it's a hard thing to know, Jason. It is. And the other interesting thing is people back then compared to now were very patriotic you know, whichever right. country, pick whichever country. So the predominance of people were easily swayed to whatever they wanted to do because they thought that their country was doing the right thing. Absolutely. Very different nowadays. That's right. And I've said it over and over and over. If you go back to look at the press accounts in the 40s and the movies of the 40s and 50s, America is the greatest thing ever. It is the greatest thing that has ever existed on the face of the world. It is a can-do nation. It is the home of the free and the brave. They make the best cars. They make the best movies. They have the best food. They have the nicest houses. America is the be-all and end-all. And I remember my grandparents when they were still alive, how proud they were to be Americans. Well, that mindset set has has totally shifted. When you look at the media now, you're being convinced by the media that America is circling the drain. Um, you can see the power that is brought to bear through media. And I'm here to tell you that anyone who wants to go back and scrutinize what actually happened at Pearl Harbor or some of the big battles like Midway, you'll find out that it's no different than what we were just shown in Vegas. We're looking at Hollywood renditions of things that did not occur. Um, there's no real combat in any of those things that I reviewed, and you're being told that it's actual combat footage. So there it is. And these masters of the universe that we are talking talking about now, these are the guys, man, that fund it, that think about it, that make up the groups that enact all these things. And I just can't get away from the idea that in like three bullet points now, we've mentioned that once Britain controls it all, war won't even be a possible thing. So I'm asking you, have we had any wars in recent memory, in recent history that went down in the way we think they did? I think it's questionable. Probably the, the last of the real wars would have been in the 1800s. Everything after that probably was skewed to one degree or another. Not to say that wars and battles didn't happen, but the way they got reported and went down in the history books were certainly skewed. Well, you know, it, it, I, I don't know, Jason. I have problems with all of it. You know, I always remember when I was a kid watching those Nazi movies where you're being shown that these Nazi soldiers are being ordered to machine gun down all these people. We've all seen it over and over again as a supposed account of how the Nazis treated people. I would suggest to you that if you got 10 soldiers out of any army in the world and you ordered them to machine gun down human beings at the rate you're being shown, there would be instant problems. There would people be, if they did do it, they would go insane because when they went to sleep at night, they're never going to forget what just happened. Many of them wouldn't be willing to pull the trigger. Um, I was in the United States Marine Corps. I know the people who were around me. We talked about things like this, like the first Gulf War was breaking out. We had conversations. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill someone if, if it comes to that, not knowing what was about to happen? There were many people who said, yeah, man, if my life is threatened, I'll do it. And there were quite a few other people, me among them, that had said, I will do anything I can not to kill another human being. These are hard things to know, Jason, but I, I have a feeling that we've all been convinced that this world of chess and war and all this other stuff has been wholly brought to us by the media that is controlled by the very people who are pushing the message. And on the face of it, that means that it's not an accurate picture at all. I can tell you this from someone who had firsthand experience, an elderly gentleman who was in World War II has since passed away. This was about 10 years ago. But he told me when he was confronting prisoners of war that any of the Germans that were just from the regular army, he said they were just like any other guy. They, they were just normal people. They'd chat you up. They'd ask you for cigarettes, normal things like that. But 
on the rare occasion they got an SS officer, he said the exact opposite. Those people acted like they were superior to you in every shape, way, shape, or form. They'd spit at you. They'd tell you how inferior you are to them and how they're going to rule the world kind of mentality. So that's kind of the big difference between this elitist mentality and the average soldier. All I can tell you is every single thing that I have scrutinized and carefully reviewed from World War II has come up wanting, not just wanting in a little way, wanting wholesale, having been fabricated, having faked events that there was no need to fake. Um, that's where I'm at. So Cecil Rhodes never married and never had any children that anyone has ever spoken of. But there had always been a lot of strong speculation that he may have been a homosexual due to several close male companions he had throughout his life. His ill health finally got the better of him, and he died from heart failure in 1902 at the age of 48 at his seaside cottage in Muizenberg. Now, we're going to discuss in Hour 2 what the possible reality of these roundtable groups might actually be, and then we're going to take that and go into the Rand Corporation, and I can tell you from just looking up, a lot of people who worked for the Rand Corporation also had... Road scholarships under their belt. So not all of them, of course, but I definitely saw those two things crisscrossing. And we're going to see just the massive effects, just like Tavistock, incredibly strong effects that the Rand Corporation had on society as a whole since its inception in 1948. Well, I'll tell you what, Jason, this guy dies in 1902. Let me count the ways at age 48. I would give a pretty penny to understand more about the death of these elite, these famous people. Uh, my adult mind has always told me there's more to this story. I'm not sure how to go at it. But in terms of the roundtable, um, this has been referred to obliquely in the Tavistock and other research that we've done. Um, that's that's a certainty. But as we get into this, Jason, um, the Rand Corporation is an interesting, interesting place. All these kind of think tanks end up being the places that set so much of the things we accept as normal in our life. But doesn't the Rand Corporation remind you, you know, the uh, where they're up on the moon in the movie 2001 talking about this new secret that they've got to keep. Um, what's the name? Do you remember the name of the think tank that those words were pulled from? Brookings Institute. That was it. Oh, yes, right? yes, yes. So, so they're saying verbatim basically what the supposed Brookings Institute had put forth as public policy if aliens were ever discovered. You see, the Rand Corporation, in my view, could be interchangeable with this idea that's being put forward in the movie 2001. Anything that brings uh, any anyways, that brings us to the top of the hour, Jason. Um, do you want to run through anything before we jump? No, no, we're good. Let's uh, let's move on to hour two. All right, man. Hour two will be posted in its entirety for membership on Crow777radio.com. At the point of the posting of this episode, there will be 84 free hours of content on Crow777radio.com. This is all the stuff that used to run on YouTube. It is all there and available. If you want to come over and check out the free stuff, that's cool. If you want to come support the free speech Jason and I endeavor to deliver every single week, um, become a member, and that is cool, too. The second hour is going to be quite a thing as we get into the Rand Corporation. There it is, man. The end of the first hour for Crow777 Radio Podcast, Episode 84. Cheers. Cheers. 